0: In this week's episode of Spit. For years, you and I would talk about Patrick Godowskis. And I'd be like, the guy doesn't deserve to be on tour. He's not good enough to be on tour. I gotta say, Pat Godowskis totally flipped the switch on me. Like He went to a whole nother level of professionalism. And he finally just said, I'm not letting anyone... I'm not gonna let myself snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. He went to a whole new level. He basically, for the first time, said, f*** you. It was really about him putting aside this whole, hey, everything's groovy, you know, Godowska's clan, we're all about positive vibe, warrior, you know, that's all bull****. When it's time to get into the heat and win a contest, and it wasn't even the turns, although the turns were impressive, it was his mental, you could tell mentally he had flipped the switch, like, I got screwed in that first round heat, was it the first round heat? Against Jordy. Yeah, I got screwed against Jordy and I am not letting these f***ers take it from me. And he went all out and I've got to say, I'm a huge fan of the way he surfed and his mental, the switch that happened mentally with him. And he needs to grasp that, hold on to that, and continue that and ditch the whole, you know, everyone's cool. We love them all. It's all cool. That's bull****. Yeah. It's a f- surf contest. You're out to win it. Man, you're on fire, dude. Well, I'm just stoked I- on Pat. Pat Gadals has got me there. He, he got me fired up. Get fired up for this week's episode of Spit.
1: You can find it on Apple Podcasts. Stitcher, whatever podcast app you're listening to this show in, you can find Spit Surf Podcast with me, David Lee Scales, and my co-host, my impassioned co-host, Scott Bass. Check it out every two weeks. Thanks.
2: And then the element of cold, you know, we were in what was probably in the high 40s of water and who knows with the wind chill. It was just every time you went surfing, you had to psych yourself up to even put your wetsuit on.
1: Today's episode is sponsored by Spy, the creators of The Happy Lens. And that was the voice of Alex Gray, one of Spy's team writers. He was telling me about how cold water is a natural way to immediately elevate one's mood.
2: You get to a place windsurfing cold water that you mentally have to kind of go into this euphoric psychotic state to to keep tricking your body that it's okay and at that point it just becomes mind over matter your whole session is going to be based upon your thoughts you know for me i am happiest surfing so if it's pumping and i have to choose to be cold or keep surfing it's the easiest choice i can make i just sit there and start screaming laughing if someone was looking you know with a telescope during the session they go god that guy is crazy But for me, I'm like, this is the best. If this is crazy, then, you know, put me in the loony bin because this is where I want to live.
1: Cold water therapy is no joke. Seriously, if you're ever in a funky mood, take a cold plunge or even a cold shower. You'll notice an immediate state change. Spy has developed the Happy Lens based on studies of seasonal affective disorder where doctors treat patients with the serotonin-promoting long-wave blue light. Spy's Happy Lens is engineered to let the good light in while simultaneously protecting your eyes from the damaging effects of sunlight. You can learn more about it at spyoptic.com. And if you use our promo code, PODCAST, during the month of April, we will gift you a one-year membership to the surf rider foundation in honor of earth day how cool is that one year free to surf rider foundation you'll get to support this show get a pair of shades and benefit the environment everyone wins and then alex gray will be back later in the show to tell us how to find the best uncrowded waves in the world so look forward to that but until then spyoptic.com promo code podcast see happy Welcome back. Today's show is with board builder Roger Hines. Lots is going on with Roger right now, and just there's a lot of changes happening in board building business in Southern California right now. In regard to the changing economics, somewhat due to outsourced manufacturing, um, changing market conditions, there's a lot going on. I'm sure that you've seen some of the debates happening on social media. It's been getting hot So Roger has been building boards for 40 years and is right in the thick of it. And his business was dramatically affected by a lot of these changing conditions in this past week. So we get deep into that in today's show. But before we do, you know that this month, in honor of Earth Day, we're taking time to shine the light on Maui board builder Jeff Timponi for his efforts with his Maui Leaf Light project, in which he uses either recycled foam or solar-made foam along with bio-resin and hemp cloth to make boards that have a 30% reduced carbon footprint. I'm partnering with Tim Pony to give away a custom-made Maui Leaf Light to one of our show's donors. This show is listener-supported, and we have a PayPal donation button set up on surfsplendorpodcast.com. There's, you can do a one-time donation or a recurring donation. We recommend doing a five-month, uh, $5 a month recurring donation. But any donation that comes in in the month of April will be entered to win this board that we're going to discuss now. We will randomly select a winner on May 1st. We'll put that winner in contact with Jeff Timponi, and he will build them a short board custom designed to their needs and specifications. As the winner, the only thing you'll be responsible for is shipping the board from Maui, which turns out to be one of Timponi's Greatest challenges in pursuing sustainability, but also one of his greatest attributes.
3: Well, I'd say probably the biggest hurdle is that we've been in we're in the middle of the ocean. You know, our geographic isolation makes it harder to get certain things, and we're not able to order containers full of blanks or you know drums of resin because in the beginning there was no local supply chain, so we ordered direct from the manufacturers and uh, in small quantities. But, you know, we were able to develop working relationships with both materials producers and distributors. And, you know, like I said, it didn't happen overnight. It's been something we've been working on. You know, and as it's come to work out on the bright side, you know, being in the middle of the ocean allows us to access new and unique materials from kind of all over the Pacific Rim. We we get some of our stuff from Australia, um, indirectly from uh, growers in China with the hemp and stuff like that.
1: And that's kind of the point I wanted to highlight, especially in preparation for this upcoming conversation with Roger Hines and the state of board building. Moving an industry towards lessening environmental impact takes time and it's expensive. So it's important to support these things that you feel strongly about in the early stages. It expedites R&D, gives confidence to the material supplier. It also allows these smaller builders who are actually building the boards with their own hands and working directly with surfers to maintain an edge in a marketplace that increasingly has larger, well-funded corporations who are largely following their leads.
3: You know, the percentage of boards that we're selling and building are definitely going more and more towards the leaf light construction it's kind of amazing. Like I said, and you know, Maui is a kind of a funny place. There's a, a ton of boards being built here. I want to say for one small Island, there's like seven shaping machines. So there's tons of stuff just being busted out. But a lot of my clientele got old like me, you know, a lot of them don't, they don't surf that much anymore. So, but the younger generations and, uh, and, and, you know, the, the cool thing about the younger generations is they're not all just you know, high performance, I want a 510, you know, what, uh, Felipe Toledo's riding. They, got, they, got, they want retro stuff. They want single fins. They want fishes. They, you know, it's, it's kind of cool. And, 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 you know, I've been building quite a few uh, longboards as well with out of the Maui Leaflight materials. All of my team riders, and that's not that many, but they all ride a Maui Leaf Light and they're all really stoked and they're and you know I have to make less team boards because they seem to last you know some of them will last last a year which is unheard of
1: and that really is the most important detail in sustainability durability making a reusable product is simply better for the environment so thanks to Jeff Timponi for helping lead the charge I'll link to his stuff his social media etc on SurfSplendorPodcast.com and post photos of these Maui Leaf Light boards. That's also where you can support this show, which, of course, will enter you to win a board from Jeff. Um, Jeff will build it to your custom needs. I've also mentioned that I'm going to have a booth at the boardroom show on May 5th and 6th in Del Mar. I'm going to have at least one of these Maui Leaf Light boards in the booth, so you can come check it out. Jeff is also making arrangements to come to california and hang out in the booth and uh he hasn't quite confirmed yet but it looks like it's going to happen so make time to swing by engage him in conversation and check out the maui leaf light boards all right onward roger Hines. He's a funny dude. In his real life, in his daily life, he is so colorful, fully opinionated, hot-tempered, and then every time I've had him on the show, he turns into this mild-mannered, tame, well-spoken, but dare I say, docile human being. He would not like me saying that, but that is a fact whenever he's on the air. So this time around, I think I may have cracked the veneer. We get the real Roger here, so buckle in. Uh, If you want his backstory, you can listen to episode 91 of Surf Splendor. It's on our website. Suffice to say, he's been building boards for 40 years in California, Hawaii, Japan, South America, Europe. He's worked with everybody. He owns the license for bear surfboards, which was brought into mainstream popularity in the film Big Wednesday. So if you wanted a bear surfboard, he's the guy who will make it for you. He also um, owns the license for Country Surfboards, the iconic label, and of course his own Roger Hines Surfboards. He's the two-time winner of the Icons of Foam Shaping Competition, the tribute to the Masters, which he will be competing in again at the Boardroom Show next month. We recorded this episode over a bottle of wine in his kitchen in Seal Beach, California with his wife, Christy Presiding. This is David Scales for Surf Splendor, and here's my conversation with Roger Hines. Enjoy.
2: Thank you, baby, for giving me my
4: The noise of choice.
1: How about a champagne cork? Yeah. <laughs> is champagne on your normal nightly routine? No. Oh, okay. Special I'm occasion today? You're here. Oh, nice.
2: I like champagne.
1: Chills you out. Cheers.
4: Great to see you Christy, again. Christy, will cheers
1: again once you get that open. Um,
4: did you surf today? I did. Okay. There it is. I did. I surfed Bolsa around 10 o'clock. When I rode an 11 footer. Oh, okay. So it was small? Yeah, it's like one foot. Okay. But the water had warmed up a bit. I know. It's crazy how much warmer it's gotten in one week. Yeah, it was small, but it was, you know, it was fun. We nobody around because i guess there was a couple sharks spotted the last couple days were there
1: really yeah i didn't know that
4: they're out there That's
1: the ocean that is a good point yes they are all right roger hines welcome back to the show dude good to be here thank you for inviting me again you are very welcome thank you for inviting me into your lovely home and pouring me a glass of wine nice way to spend the afternoon
4: yep We have my lovely bride Christy here.
1: I know, drinking the fancy stuff out of the fancy glass too. Um, We have a lot to catch up on, dude, since we last talked. Yeah. Um, Make sure again you speak to the back of the room, of course. First thing I wanted to share with you: Do you um, are you familiar with Reddit, the website? I'm
4: not. Okay.
1: Reddit is uh, its basically a message form. You can go on there and write about anything, and people have conversations about the latest UFC fight to whatever shampoo they're using to all sorts of stuff. A listener sent me a link to Reddit. Reddit username Shadow Ratinator posted a photo of you here in your driveway. He was picking up what he called... Quote, the Paisley Mermaid Longboard.
4: Oh yeah, that was a beautiful board. It was. Yeah, it was.
1: And he said, quote, Roger and inf- he wrote a bunch about the board and then he goes, Roger informed me that this board is part of his last batch of boards he will make. He's decided to retire after the shop he did his glassing in closed its doors. He's planning on surfing more and seems set up for retirement, but there was a twinge of sadness. His impression is the Chinese pop-out slash wavestorm revolution is taking its toll. I don't want to turn this into some anti-bulk board rant. Um, and I've my first board that I've ever gotten was a Chinese-made board. But this whole conversation kind of gave me an, uh-oh, this board is practically a mu- museum piece board now. How can I surf it? No worries, I'm going to surf this board anyways. End quote. So Roger... Are you retiring? And is it because of wave storms? Oh, God, no.
4: No, it, yeah, <laughs> I'm retiring from glassing. Yeah, my, it's ran its course. I, I, uh, my friend who I worked with in St. Clemente, he decided that uh, to go a different direction. It's Glassing surfboards is a hard job. It's physical. And when you're in your 60s, it's even harder. Um, so, no, I, I probably misspoke or or something. I'm, I'm still going to shape. Oh, you are? Yeah, I'm still okay. going to shape some boards. And, and I didn't get ran out uh, because of the import boards. I still have orders. It just, it, I think it just ran its course when Maurice decided to uh, close the factory. It was just time to throw in the towel as far as glassing because I just don't have it in me to go set up another factory Yeah. for a couple of reasons. I don't want to work that hard and have the overhead. And my wife would probably divorce me if I did. Yeah. So... Going forward, I'm just going to shape some boards. And I have a, a guy in Huntington Beach at Surf City Glass in James. He does a really nice job. He okay. works really hard. And see a he, one-man show? He has a sander and a polisher, but he does all the color work himself. And, and yeah, he's, he's a tough guy, young guy who does a really quality job.
1: Um, do you know who he's finishing boards for now?
4: I think he's doing some ECs and uh, – some other guys okay but uh i ran into him a while back and and i sent him a couple boards overflow stuff that i had and yeah it turned out really nice so i thought you know what okay why not
1: so is that to say then that um glassing and laminating is more labor intensive or harder on the body than shaping
4: yeah in my opinion laminating is and polishing. I mean, you're dragging a 6,000 RPM around with you. Is that what the difference for an is? Hour. Yeah, it's, it's very, it's very um, physically demanding because you're on your feet for a long time. When I was in my 30s, 40s, 50s, this shit meant nothing to me. I would just go there and work 10 hours a day and, and go surf. But in your 60s, it, it's tough. It's mm-hmm. a tough game. And to try to keep the quality at that level... To where, when a customer picks up a board, it looks like a museum piece. Then, it takes that much effort to get it there. Right.
1: It seems to be though. There are other um, board builders who maybe they have like a factory in house, you know, and but they're able to maintain super high quality by not doing it all themselves. Yeah. So it seems to be feasible. It seems to be other people are doing it. You know.
4: Yeah. You know, early on we we used to build a lot of boards and we had a crew working with us. But as time went by, I realized that the end result was better for me because I'm really type A personality and I okay. really want, I see how I want the thing to turn out and that's what I expect as opposed to it's just a surfboard. But So it just seemed to be worked better for me I just did it myself. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there are some really good uh, work being done out there. Uh, Moonlight, Jesus. You know, Gary Stuber, just the best laminator on the planet. And he's older than me. Jeez. Uh, Waterman's does a great job. There's guys down there. Uh, uh, I apologize. I'm probably going to miss a few people. But uh, there's there's quality work going on. And I think that's a lot of the difference in today's boards, the, the younger group of surfboard guys, let's just use the 90s for instance. The 90s, in my eyes, was the last time you could train somebody to build boards at a high level because they were pretty bad at best. They were six-foot sand finishes, and you could get used to working with the tools and the, and the chemicals and everything, and then move into the next stages of of getting your doing cut laps and and polishes and but now it's all pretty much at such a high level it's really hard to train somebody right that's why a guy like gary's still working when he's older than me uh, because the hiring pool's kind of thin
1: yeah that's what everybody seems to be saying or and then the people coming in to the workspace aren't willing to work for the wages that it is and do the amount of work that's actually required to develop the skill set
4: you know, that that's a good point. You know, I, I said I said this more than the last year than I have in forty years. Um, I would get paid ten dollars to sand a board in nineteen seventy four. And now guys are making twenty three dollars to sand a board. And that's just fucking Fort, forty that's, years
1: later the price it's is only just
4: crazy. doubled. Yeah. It's just, and there's no blame on the people who own the shops. It's right. just it's what the market bears. I mean there's I see a race to the bottom right now. Everybody wants to build, well, I shouldn't generalize. There's people who want to build a lot of boards for less money, and that has never, that's crazy business 101. Yeah. I mean, that's a crazy business model. Yeah. Um, because you can't build more for less and, and make any money. At the end of the day, everything is more expensive. The AQMD's breathing down everybody's neck in, in uh, Encinitas and, San Diego because of chemicals. They're trying to run the surf business out of here the way, much of the way they ran the, the boat business out of here in the 90s. They're structuring laws that, uh, that attack basically the, the resin that we use. Yeah. Um, and one of them right now is the Ricoh gloss resin. It's the same stuff we've been using for 40 years. It hasn't changed. And now they're going after the styrene content in that. Where'd the boat business go? Uh, Washington. Okay. Washington State and other places. I'm, I'm not sure, but they ran those guys the hell out of here. Yeah. Um, well, a lot about the
1: uh, market conditions and the economics, I want to discuss a lot of that in more detail. But before we get to it, you mentioned quality glass work, something that comes up all the time. What is a quality glass job? Like what goes into it? Define quality.
4: Well, I don't even know where to go with that because everybody has their own idea of quality.
1: Is there specific materials that you need to use? Is there specific techniques that are required?
4: Again, there, there's some materials that work easier for me uh, than maybe somebody else. There's, um, I used uh, JPS fiberglass. Okay. From Ted Wilson Fiberglass White. Okay. Because it bends around wings really well, and it I don't have to cut. It turns corners really easy, swallowtails. I mean, you can turn a squash tail without putting a cut in it. Okay. And ninety nine out of ten boards that I built were colored. So everything was based around the finished product.
1: Based around how the color saturates the fiberglass.
4: Yeah, and how the fiberglass bent the rails and how it looked when it was done, now you may get a different opinion from somebody else. Uh,
1: But that's why I'm asking is because we say that, every single person I talk to says, oh, I make a quality surfboard. Mm -hmm. Well we know, not everybody does, so how do you define quality, you know what I mean? Like What can the consumer look at to say, you know, this is a quality product versus another? So obviously raw material matters, is JPS, do you know where they're made?
4: Yeah, it's here in America. That's what I thought. J.P. Stevens here. Okay. But you can only buy it through Fiberglass Hawaii. They have the... uh, Oh, okay. Got it. They have that. Um, You know, I just tried to use the best, what I thought was the best of everything. I used Fiberglass Hawaii's Transparents. I thought it was the best. Um, I started using those in the late 80s, early 90s, when there wasn't a lot of that going on here in California, uh, transparent work. And, and it just worked the same way we had the RAM chemicals that we got uh, from Ram Corporation here in California. We, we'd have it shipped to Hawaii in the early days. But, and then I used uh, Duratec pigments. Um, it has a real... It's, it's, again, I think you're, I use the materials I use because I find something that works and I, I don't change for a cheaper price. If somebody brought me something different, they said, this is as good, but cheaper, I would wouldn't even look at it because even if they said it was better i I have something that works, and I'm not going to change because mm-hmm. when you build a board by yourself, you do not want to change anything because you're going to end up fixing shit. And yeah you just don't have time to fix stuff. Um, back to the
1: economics kind of discussion. It's also a matter of um, everybody, board builders run on such thin margins that you can't really afford to start from scratch with something oftentimes, I feel, you know, like if you're if you've spent all the time shaping a board and you've dialed it to what the customer's needs are and then something goes wrong in the coloring process, mm-hmm. you got to throw that out and start from scratch.
4: Yeah. Yeah. I always just tried to do what I was used to working with and, and it, 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 it ran through all those years. It worked. It worked fine. Yeah. Um, You know, I, I never stopped learning. That's one thing I'd like to get a point across to anybody who's just getting going in surfboards or is on their way in the journey is if you think you know it all and you have nothing, no more room to learn, then you need to get the hell out of the business and go dig holes for a living because you need to learn every day. You need to know that you can raise that bar up every day. Because if you think like that and you do that, you can charge serious money for your boards. Mm-hmm. Not every board has to be sold for $425. The board has got to be sold for $425 because it looks like everybody else's. Right. And there's nothing about it that's different. Yeah. So when you put yourself in a situation like that, to where, and it's a, it's a slippery slope because people are really going to put you under a microscope. Yeah. Well, really, what do these boards look like in person? And and so, you know, you just do the best you can and charge money for it. People will pay for a quality product. Yeah. People will be more apprehensive. They'll want the bro deal for the six-foot sand finish because it's a commodity.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: When everything went on the computer, I think everything kind of, and this is from only from where I sit. It's just my opinion. But I've built over 30,000 surfboards in my life, so I have a, I have an opinion everything changed when Gordon closed Clark Foam. yep everything changed because number one everybody was trying to get their hands on some blanks and I mean I had just gotten back from Hawaii and I was expecting a 60 blank drop uh, from Clark foam and because um, back then we were doing Five, six hundred boards a year, I think. Okay. And I had no blanks. Yeah. So we started trying to find blanks and the, so the stuff that started to show up was really clunky and bulky and and pretty pretty hard to shape. And I think that's when everybody made the mass exodus to the machine.
1: Okay. So let me break it down for the listener to give them kind of cultural context. Mm-hmm. It's two, December 5th, 2005, was it? Yeah. Or December 6th, um, yeah, yeah, the 5th. Yeah. So Gordon Clark basically all but had a monopoly on foam manufacturing, right? For the U.S. anyway?
4: If you call it a monopoly, I, I think that Gordon, you know, and my wife will be mad at me about this, but I'll tell you what, Gordon helped me in business because I understood the rules. And I'm a business person. A surfboard builder and a surfer. But your is, business model doesn't work. Is that to say he was a stodgy businessman? Let's put it this way. You you followed the rules and you yeah. got everything you needed in a fair price, in a timely fashion. Yeah.
1: Well, I don't mean to use the word monopoly as a negative. I just mean that he had the lion's share of the market in foam manufacturing. He was an early pioneer of it, right, with Hobie Alter. Mm-hmm. They split. Gordon continued the foam business as Hobie did his board and boat business, retail business and everything, um, and just having the lion's share of the market from the beginning put him in an advantageous position for the next 50 years. So when did you start working with him?
4: Early on, I was getting blanks in Hawaii. Uh, we started getting them from Ted Wilson when Ted was getting... He was actually pouring foam in Hawaii, and then uh, Clark Foam started coming in, and, and we started using that. But... Um, Again, let me let me go a little further with Gordon. At that time everybody was hand shaping. There was a few right. machines and he really went out of his way to make enough molds, plugs, to where we had a big catalog of blanks that were very close tolerance and, and, and what do you mean by close tolerance? You didn't have to uh, take a lot of foam off the rails and overshape the board which would make it weaker. Okay. There was a, it was a big catalog of blanks, and it was a really good selection. And-
1: so, again, hold your thought. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to interrupt. Um, the strength is kind of in the uh, exterior of the blank. So if you... Let's just... For argument's sake, if you made like a giant block of foam and had to shape it down to a 6'4", that interior of the core wouldn't be as strong as the exterior. So close tolerance means get a blank that matches the final shape that you're hoping to d- to make so that you don't have to whittle away a tremendous amount of foam. You're still working kind of with the exterior of the core. Is yep, that what you're saying? Exactly. Okay. But,
4: and I don't want to jump around, but that brings up a good piece of, uh, back then there was a longboard blank. In the late 80s, there wasn't a lot of longboard blanks. There was a Sid Madden, and I think it was a 9.3. And the thing was really thick. And so we started making boards for the Russ K. Makaha team guys. They were surfing the pipeline and other places with them. And so I started buying these things in super green because everything was was being made. Uh, I don't know. I think we were using a lot of Stuart plugs at that time, the 9.5S or whatever they were. Um,
1: super green being the density
4: the density and then i would just sh- overshape the bottom of those damn things and i'll tell you what you could get a nine foot long board to weigh nothing oh, okay. with that and they would be as strong as a they would reduce to like a super light at the time
1: so you're overshaping the bottom because the top needs to needs to stay stronger because yeah. that's
4: where their feet and knees
1: are touching yeah. right so you keep the strength in the deck take more foam out of
4: the bottom yeah and I, i'll tell you that that combination really worked well to where you would cut so much off of that blank that it would still be strong on the deck, and that thing would be so damn light. Yeah. When you're done, was, but you were hand shaping back then. If you didn't have a rockwell, you were definitely spending some time with a skill. Right. But um. So. So Clark comes along, or I'm sorry, Clark closes in
1: 2005, yeah. kind of at the same time as the shaping machine is gaining popularity, mm-hmm. and obviously the Clark foam coming from that legacy prior to the machine is designed or engineered for hand shaping, yeah. really.
4: Yeah.
1: So you're saying Clark goes away, new foam is on the market that mm-hmm. is more kind of geared for shaping machine?
4: Yeah, it was pretty poor at best. We got a bunch from uh, South, Africa. South Africa. We got a bunch from, uh, there was a bunch coming in from China, I think. I don't know where it was all coming from. It was crazy shit. But it was, it was, that's when everybody shot off to the machines to get uh, their board shaped. And I'll tell you, There's people talking now I hear on social media about how, you know, it sends, uh, it puts people out of work when boards are made in in overseas, but hey, we put a lot of freaking people out of work when we went, well, not me, but when they went to the machines, there was a lot of ghost shapers that lost their freaking career. Mm -hmm. I mean, because I know several companies that had five or six shapers working for them and they no longer need them because now you got a machine. Yeah, where those
1: people go outside
4: the I, industry? I, I don't know. I think some of them are, are still, you know, around. But uh, you know, it, I think the point I'm trying to make is is it's this is more than this is more than just one layer of problem. It's not firewire. And I'm not waving their flag at all. I, I don't have a dog in that hunt because FireWire doesn't make what I make. So right. as far as I'm concerned, I don't care.
1: Right. But they do catch all the flack for sure. Yeah.
4: yeah. And Surftech was around for 20 years before FireWire. Right. Ron Johns, when 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 Ron Johns opened up at the block over here in Orange County, everybody was like Chicken Little. Oh shit, they're going to put everybody out of business because they got China Mayboards. That's just total bullshit. Right. They didn't put anybody out of business. As a matter of fact, they're gone. They're gone. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, I I think there's multiple layers to this whole thing that um, there's a lot of people in this business right now that if the shape machine went away, well, they'd be parking cars for a living. Yeah, right. So that's part of the layer. Right. And that's part of the pie. That's part of the piece of pie that people are feeling right now that if somebody says, well, orders have really thinned out Well, because there's a lot of people making freaking surfboards right now. And I feel like that
1: will shake out. Like that will, it'll sort itself out, you know, like it's impossible to predict the way that an industry, any industry will expand and then constrict later. And so uh, technology is always going to advance. And the way that things change is unpredictable People will lose jobs in one sector and they'll gain jobs in another sector. And that's why I asked you when the shaping machine came along and it put a bunch of people out of business, I asked, where did those people go? Um, did they go outside the industry? Did they stay within the industry? I, I mean, obviously, you don't know per person and I don't either, but I would argue they all found a home they didn't end up on the street homeless they all got jobs somewhere maybe some of them got better jobs than they had in the surf industry that provided better living for their fam- you know like it's impossible to yeah. keep track of
4: all, all of that is 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 possible um, i just i just think there's multiple layers to this some of the import boards have and some of the local board builders the big guys their business model is to give surf shops boards on consignment until they sell and and so the surf shops don't buy surfboards anymore. I mean basically, right, right. You walk into a surf shop and I don't know personally and I may be mistaken, but I don't know personally any surf shop that pays for surfboards in 2018, right? So okay, so you and
1: I haven't really talked for a month and in that month I saw that Reddit post that I just read and I've talked to some other of our mutual friends and they're like, "Oh yeah, Roger's going whatever the glass shop is closing or selling or something so I called you this morning and I'm like Roger let's catch up but let's do it on the air because I really want to have all these conversations that we're having um, are relevant and I have them with other people and you're an expert in the space so I kind of want to talk about that how the retail model has changed how the board business has changed how the economics of it all have changed part of me wants to point the finger and go who's bringing if somebody brings boards on consignment to the retailer and says, you know, you keep these boards as long as you want. Once they sell, then you pay us, but you don't have an invoice due in 30 days. And I know that you do your business on 30-day terms. And and for by and large, that's the way most of the surf industry has done their business, right? Mm-hmm. The retailer decides how much of a given product they want, they commit to that number, and then they're responsible for that invoice in 30 days regardless of whether it sells or not. So I look at the consignment model and I go, holy crap, they're undercutting Roger. They're gonna put Roger out of business because they can take three times the amount of inventory, they're not responsible for paying for it unless it sells, and I feel a little bit indignant. Well then I set back, or my more pragmatic side kind of analyzes it and goes, well, if they've figured out a way to run their business more streamlined and reduce costs, then good for them. Like, that's actually adm- admirable, you know, and I'm not actually angry about that. But at the same time, I, I have a conflicting, you know, I have both sides kind of arguing in my head. Yeah. I understand the economics of both sides of it.
4: No, and you're right. I think it's a genius business model if you can sustain it.
1: If you can sustain it.
4: Um, it didn't really affect me because when I, you know, the last, I'd say, five years, I was able to just be a standalone business. I didn't really have to sell to shops to make a living, only because I worked my whole life and sure. been able to save. But and you have forty years of uh, goodwill built in a community that will
1: call you directly to order a board.
4: Right, you know? but there's a lot of people that are on the ropes, of course, for that reason right there that they lost their retailers, they lost their following, and uh, they have their own little following. But that that is. There again, I have to say there are a lot of surfboard builders, man. Right. I mean, people are aren't not building surfboards. There's a lot of builders, but um but aren't there aren't
1: a lot of those builders not res, relying on their sole income for that? You know, there's a lot of oh, backyard yes. builders who are doing it as a hobby.
4: Of course. Yeah. But okay, you know, in the in the early 70s, we were guilty of that. Right.
2: We were, we were we were the
4: backyard guys and so we were guilty of that but then there was just nobody building boards i mean now you there's places you can go buy blanks and you can buy them online and have them shipped to your house and um, which i think is good and i, I don't i cuz that's how i learned mm-hmm. I, I don't i don't think bad of anybody building a board on their own i'm just trying to put it into perspective why i think that's a layer of those layers i'm talking about yeah while why people are on the ropes right now is yeah. because if you have a thousand of them in california which you do if not ten times that amount and they do two boards a week that's taken away from a guy who's got a freaking mortgage payment and trying to put a kid through college right who actually has skin in the game and has spent a. Uh, I mean, I have talking to several people in San Clemente the last week when I was down there, and, and they're just going, hey, you know, we got kids. We got – this is what we do. I got nowhere else to go. Yeah. And so I get that in my ear, and I, I just go, wow, you know, you're right. My situation is different. Um, but uh,
1: – So it seems that there's um, an opportunity to adapt you know like as that as the economics change and the business models are certainly shifting certainly with consignment if you don't see the writing on the wall then you're partially responsible for your own kind of what whatever ends up happening so it seems that there's ways to adapt to the current market needs and what i've seen is that people generally want the type of boards that you're making like you got the backyard guy, as you explained, who's um, willing to do it at cost basically because they're just kind of getting their feet in the game. And the consumer maybe who's not super savvy is willing to buy that board and maybe it's faulty, maybe it falls apart in a month, maybe it just isn't, doesn't surf as good, period, even if it holds up. And then on the other way other side of the market is you've got um, giant brand names that are available throughout the world that you and I know that are making... Almost all the boards are cut on a machine and you know they, they, it just is what it is. You're somewhere in the middle, but you're providing not only customer service, but again, 40 years of kind of legacy and all that sort of stuff uh, that we generally just kind of define as quality. Again, it seems to be people want your boards. You know what I mean? Like there is a segment of the market. You don't need to be able to sell 2,000 of them a year, but there's, a, there's 500 to 1,000
4: people that want your boards and want the boards of other people that I've had on the show, you know? No, you're right. And the reason I'm stopping glassing is not because of lack of orders. It's, But here's the thing. There's a lot of people right now making boards that look like the way I make them. Okay. Because there's some really good glass shops out there that are facil- facilitating that. And just because it's made in America doesn't mean it's made in America by somebody who knows how to shape. Okay, It means that it's possibly made by somebody who's really savvy with shape 3D and sends it off to a groovy glass shop, and it comes out looking like something that was built by somebody who's been doing it 40 plus years.
1: What's the difference between looking like it versus it actually being? I don't know.
4: You'd have to write it and get feedback, and do they have repeat customers? And but do you think there is? Is there an an, an innate innate difference? I think that, yeah, I know what makes a board go from here to there. And I know how to change it to go from here to there and back and over to there. Mm -hmm. I know, after all these boards, what makes it do this. And and I'm not taking anything away from the machine guys. I just... I don't... I never put myself in a situation to where I thought, wow, that guy's my competition. Because he's not. Because... He doesn't do what I do. Mm-hmm. Unless you're in there shaping the thing and taking it and glassing it and polishing it, you're not doing what I do. Yeah. So I don't have competition. Um, there's on social media, which, man, <laughs> social media, I just think single-handedly just torched the surf business. There's people showing, yeah, I'm hand-shaping a board, but look, son, the planer looks like a snake in your hand. So yeah. I know you're not shaping it. It, yeah, it's, yeah. it doesn't look comfortable it should be like a tennis racket in your hand or a yeah. ping-pong paddle yeah and and that's the best thing I think that's come out of the boardroom show even before I got an opportunity to um, to be involved in it it really put a spotlight on the guys who were actually had a big enough ego to step into that glass room and say I'm gonna show off my shaping talents because there was a couple People that ran out of there with their blanks, they were so bad. Yeah. So, I mean, if you're willing to step into that cage and show your wares, then good for you. Yeah. But also, on the other hand, it it actually... You get a chance to watch guys who I I just admire. You get to watch Wayne Rich. You get to watch Matt Calvani. You, You get to watch Rawson. All these guys are so good with their tools. And... And... And that's what it's about is watching guys like that and learning the skill as opposed to, well, for me it is anyway. And I I still, I still, I can't wait for three weeks. I want to go watch this guy shape. The guy from Florida, Ricky Carroll. I've never met him, never seen him shape. He's won three times. I want to shake his hand and watch his action. I'm going to be excited to watch it. Yeah.
1: I agree. It's unfortunate that there's been people um, in the Shaping Bay who have not finished their boards and run away Mm -hmm. with them because it shouldn't be a competition. It should just be a kind of appreciation hour of people who really know their craft. You know? I don't feel like any of the key guys make it a competition. You know? Like, everybody's really reverent of one another.
4: Yeah.
1: Um, As, I mean, let's... Assume that not all listeners can contact you and get a board. Maybe they don't live in Southern California or whatever. I'm curious if you can help define um, what people can look for. Like if they go into a surf shop and they want to buy a board off a rack, how do you identify one that will work well for you versus one that won't? Is there a way to do it visually or do you need a personal relationship with a
4: shaper? You know, that is, that's a big question. You know, it took me probably 5,000 boards of shaping before I even knew what the hell I was looking at. Really? I could shape a board. I could shape a board where it was symmetrical and, and it was, the rails were the same, every, everything was right. But I didn't know what I was looking at until after about 5,000 boards. And then it just, oh, okay. Mm. I think uh, the best thing somebody can do is is get a relationship with a shaper and and grow from there i've had people i've made boards for for the last 40 plus years that they just keep coming back and we discuss okay let's what is this board what did it what i know you liked it there's got to be one thing you didn't like about it i want to i don't care what you liked about it i want to know what you didn't like about it yeah that's the most important thing to Mm -hmm. me because i want to know okay what can i do to make that go away right you've built
1: five or six maybe more
4: boards for me yes um who
1: have you worked with for the longest period of time, and how many boards have you built for that person, do you think? Wow.
4: I've had the opportunity through my career to walk on what I call eggshells, building boards for some of the best uh, longboarders during that time frame in the 90s and the 2000s for the Rust K. guys and Taylor Jensen, and um, again, I apologize, I probably... I'm forgetting somebody. That's David. That's what I missed the most. What? Is my freaking memory. (laughs) (laughs) I swear to God. (laughs) Anyway, uh, can you help me with that?
2: Well, I think you have a lot of customers that come back that aren't famous. are That surf at the beach. Yeah. They aren't like a famous name, but they do come back over and over. And I've received a lot of phone calls. That's the best board I ever had. And. Do they're, they're just repeat customers?
4: I think that's the key. You're going to have your, your, uh, your surfers that always gravitate towards the, what the best surfers in the world are riding. Yes. yes. And that's just called so what. You know what? Yeah, yeah. I want to surf like Kelly Slater too. Yeah. Except for I'm 40 years too old and never had that talent. Um, I would think the, get a relationship with a guy who you, who you feel comfortable with and grow from there. Get your boards and refine them. Go back to the guy. And you know it, it really is a difference if you're heavy on your front foot or if you're heavy on your back foot. Yeah. I changed my whole bottom up because of that. And I watch I watch people surf on the tour and and I watch it and I go oh, it's pretty heavy on your front foot to be riding a single concave. But that's just me. You know everybody has their formulas but yeah. Um, I try to build a board for the person and not the masses. Yeah. I've, in the 90s, I was that guy. In the 90s, Jesus, we were building s- clear sand finished boards for, I don't know, 92 to 98. I mean, we were doing probably 1,000 boards a year, clear sand finished and, and I was hand shaping and laminating and hot coating. And I had a sander. My wife ran the business and packed the boards and off they went. Yeah. Um, I think that's what's kind of confusing to me now at this age, is I still work hard at this age no matter what I do, is that if a guy's doing two or 300 boards a year and he's not glassing them, or even 500 for that matter, and you're not glassing them, why don't you handshape it? Right. Why would you give a 30-year profit to a machine?
1: Well, yeah, you wouldn't want to give away your profit, but the way that I... of justify that in my head is you talked about it all being in the refinement you know and so i figure with the machine let's assume the machine shape is off of their own design so like they and i know that's an assumption that's not true for everybody but if they hand shaped a specific board that they got real dialed that they think works well then they scan it now that's a machine shape, so now that's coming off the machine, and they can focus all their energy on just refining maybe the contours for the specific surfer that ordered that board.
4: Well, you're a really good friend, and so I'm not going <laughs> to say anything about that. Say it. but It's better for the podcast. It, uh... I'll give up our friendship for more <laughs> downloads. Fuck, come on. America's gotten lazy. Is all it is. Come okay. on. For me, it was all about the joy of shaping the board, and and does it come out as accurate as a computer shape? Well, I would hope to think so, because I did plugs for Clark Foam, and U.S. blanks are within ten thousandths of an inch from tip to tail, and so I would think they are. Uh, plus, I've seen some shapes come off the machine with my friend at my friend's factory that they're heavy to one side because the the blank deflects when it's cutting. So I just when you when you make something the industrial revolution to where you can streamline your business to where you can do have more free time. Well, once you've done that, that product can be made anywhere in the world for a lot less money. So that's just called that's your problem, not mine. Yeah. Well, th- own it. Yeah, I, I've that's been, your. Problem. That's what I've been wanting you to say for thirty that minutes. Is, that is your <laughs> problem. That if you're crying about import boards, well, import boards wouldn't exist without that shaping machine. Yeah, because they're not hand shaping those damn things. Yeah, but I'll tell you, those glass jobs I've seen—they look pretty damn good. Yeah, and I do have an opinion when it comes to glassing. So anybody who's whining about the import boards, well, then reinvent yourself and hand shape. Do something that's different. Then what's coming into America? I've made a career out of it. I own a house at the beach. I mean, life is good for me.
1: Right. Well, you and I have talked about it with wine. First of all, I'm playing devil's advocate, but you know I'm on the same page. Look at the list of people I've had on the podcast. They all reflect what you're saying. But you and I have talked about it with wine before where it's like I don't even want every bottle of wine I have to be like a perfect expression of wine. You know, Kendall Jackson makes... Wine that's available in every grocery store across the country, and it all tastes exactly the same, vintage in and vintage out, because that's what the consumer wants. And it is nice. It tastes good. It tastes like you have that dependent dependability with Coca-Cola. You know, it tastes good every time, and I like it, and it always tastes... But that's not why I drink wine. I drink wine because I want it to be an expression of a vintage, an expression of a place, a specific... I want Napa to taste different than Sonoma, to taste different than Santa Barbara County. So, that is how I view shaping as well. And I know that's not um, how everybody views shaping. Obviously, some people do just want dependability. But I agree with you. You know, and I I do see the value in the shaping machine for banging out numbers. And you know, you have a tremendous demand in the marketplace that's across the world and you can't satisfy it or you want to be able to build those boards in a different country and not have to ship them and all that so i get it completely but i personally what i prefer to ride is what you're talking about and to be able to have the dialogue Mm -hmm. and to, i mean you and i surf together so that helps you know so it's like hey you gave me a board let me try that out surf it in front of you and then you give me feedback i give you feedback and Develop the relationship from there. That's the kind of, and even if something goes awry, even if it's like, oh, that board sucked, it didn't work. That's fine. That's fine. fine. Let's find out why. Yeah, exactly. Because the journey sure. is what's more interesting and more important. Yeah. You know, the the discussion, the dialogue, the journey is fun.
4: You know, Bill Stewart used to go to Japan and blast through 150 boards. I used to go to Japan and blast through 150 boards. I'd be there for a month, month and a half, and I'd go to Brazil and do 100, 150 boards. And you didn't need that, you know, and Bill had a lot of really good shapers working here for him before the machine. And and again, it's that's the, the direction uh, a lot of these guys' business model went, which is fine. I yeah. think it's great. but. Uh, Again, it's a multiple layer. If yeah. there is a problem, there's not just one problem here. There's a few layers that everybody's got to pull them back and and look at. Yeah. If either you're part of the solution or you're part of the freaking problem.
1: But that's why I said if you don't see the writing on the wall, then you're partially responsible. You need to be able to adjust your business to be like, "Shoot, well what are the mass producers not doing?" They're yeah. not doing individual color work. Maybe I should spend some time working on color work, you know, or something like that. Um but I also do feel like it's all, in, like you said, in the refinement. So what you're not going to get off the shelf is something that was refined for your height, your weight, your the specific wave that you surf, that sort of thing. And so that's also where it's worth
4: developing that relationship with yeah. the local shaper, you know. Yeah. Um, There's still some really quality guys out there that would love to spend time with... Uh with the surfer building yes. building their board that fits them perfectly as opposed to, well, I'm going into a shop and I'm gonna buy a board that's 30 liters. What is that? I, I buy, have no idea. Yeah,
1: what is that? I, I have no idea what liters I read.
4: Yeah.
1: Um, so the question though is how do the economics work for an individual like yourself? Because what we're worried about is glass shops are closing, which is why we're having this conversation partially. The backyard builder is making boards for cost. The mass-produced builder is outsourcing um, not only materials, but also labor, right? So they're able to do it for cheaper land of the board back in the U.S. for less than it costs somebody to build a board here. And that ultimately, if the consumer... Chooses those two options, it's going to squeeze out the guy in the middle. So, what are the economics for the guy in the middle? Like, how many boards do you need to make a year? First of all, how many boards do you need to make a year to stay in business? And then, secondly, you can only make a certain number while maintaining a high level of quality. You know what I mean? You can't make 2,000 boards a year because they'll be crappy boards. So, kind of, what are the economics for a guy? Like yourself to make boards.
4: Well, let's back up a moment. Okay. Glass shops are closing. Uh, we closed not because we didn't have orders. We closed because Maurice wanted to go a different direction, and he he found it was very physically challenging to have a factory and run a business that he another business that he has, use surf, which is very successful. So he's and me spread then. Yeah, me. I'm just. I'm old. <laughs> I'm freaking. I'm tired of working that
1: hard. So maybe not that business, but we know there's glass shops in throughout San Diego that have been closing in the last couple of
4: years. Well, again, you'd have to. I'd have to know their business model. Okay. Are are they? I've I've never been really part of the uh, the bro, the, the team bro thing to where. You're going to give a a guy a board at cost because he's riding your board and he's going to sell maybe one. But that factory costs you maybe $50 per board overhead. So every time you give a board away, you not only lost your time building it and and you're not even breaking even, you're going backwards. Mm -hmm. So that business model was never part of Christie's and mine. We always, look, I'll give you a the best board I can make you, but this is what it's going to cost you. Right, And people pay it. Totally. And But there are people who want, you know, they're the next big thing and they want what they want. Um, and I think Lost, I, I'm not sure, I was talking to a friend of mine, John Tuttle, who shapes for Lost, and he was saying that Lost doesn't give boards away. Now that's the biggest board builder in the world. And they don't give boards away. They, they get something for those boards. and that's, a, that's, a, that's something to say.
1: I remember last year Mayhem saying he was sending, I think, 105 boards to Australia for the crew that was riding his boards in the CT contest. So Chloe Andino, Malia yeah. Manuel, Carissa Moore, whom, whomever. 105. But he's getting money for them. I didn't know that. Yeah and he's getting cost at at the bare minimum
4: yeah but i'm sure his business model is probably pretty good because clearly (laughs) it seems to be working but uh so i think that's kind of a slippery slope to where you you get into this business i think and you want to build it so you have to get some momentum. so you want to give boards and so you're constantly going backwards and okay i got off on a tangent sorry um
1: Need more wine? For me, too. By the way, can I tell,
4: formulate Please. that thought? I'm going to tell
1: listeners real quick. We're drinking okay. Rutherford Ranch 2014 Cabernet from Napa. Yes, we are. And Chateau Saint-Jean Alexander Valley Cabernet mm-hmm. 2013 Vintage. Because I which know is, you like variety. That's my preference, actually. Yeah. I like this one better. The Alexander Valley.
4: Carry on. How many boards did I have to m- make to make a living? Not many, because my boards are sold at a premium. I was very fortunate to you know, take that business model and and build a quality product and and not oversaturate. And Randy Ricker in the early days going to Japan, he kinda set the the limit. He goes, Raj, we're gonna go to Japan, you're gonna do fifty or seventy five, I'm gonna do fifty or seventy five, and that's it. So you have hundred or one hundred and fifty boards in Japan of ours, the bear label. And that's it. So if you don't oversaturate the market, you can demand a pretty damn good price for that, right, right. which was genius. And and Randy helped me through my whole career w- with uh, with things like that and kind of pushed me in those directions. But So that was an early business model I, I adopted was, you know what? Less is more. You don't have to, for me anyway, you don't have to. Knock out twenty or thirty a week on a machine and glass them like your hair's on fire, clear sand finish and toss them out there for whatever the market will bear if you build something like what mark andrini's building or or uh, god there's there's a few guys right now that I just really can't wait to see um, uh, andrini uh, Nick Palandrani, yeah. Yeah, that Santa Cruz. That guy's solid talent. Yeah. Yeah, and Travis Reynolds. Yep. Yeah, those those guys, I'm impressed. They, they're they solid. Yep. They're, they're the real freaking deal. You know what? They can do it, and they can do it the way it was done in the early days. Yeah. Um, I I have a lot of respect uh, for that um, because I know how hard it is to, to do that, and I also know that they're 30 years younger than me, and then when they get to where I'm at, they're going to go, I'm over this. (laughs) It's hard. Um, Physically demanding. Back to Instagram.
1: I notice that you actively engage. Some of the things that we're talking about now, I've seen you write diatribes about on Instagram, multiple, you know, paragraphs. And then I notice at other times you disappear completely and you don't engage. What's your policy on Instagram? Or what are your thoughts on it?
4: Well, if somebody's out there talking and they're full of shit... (laughs) and they have no foundation and they have no discernible skills then i'll step in and call bullshit on it and i probably shouldn't but you know what let your planner do the talking don't sit there and flap your mouth you're, you're you're a phony that's all it is you know what let your planner do the talking um why engage like I mentioned, because I'm I a crossy ass old man. That's why and I can. <laughs> Nobody's come to Seal Beach to beat up my door. Come on. <laughs> I mean, I mentioned the Peter Schroff
1: thing, and you're like, eh, you know, it's not. I'm not going to engage that thing. So, is,
4: that thing is bigger than me.
1: Okay. That so the ones is, that you feel like you can
4: affect, you'll engage. The, the ones that I have an opinion about. When okay. somebody starts talking about glassing or shaping, and they're talking out their ass, then then I'll probably say something. But if. Uh, that whole battle that's going on, I, I don't have a dog in that hunt. Right. Yeah, I got that. Um and, going, you, and going forward, Christy, don't ever let me do that again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm off Instagram. I'm I, so that's what I was gonna ask you is
1: <laughs> do you see it as beneficial for your business and your work? Or is it just ang- does it just riddle you with anxiety it, to the point just, that it's not worth some
4: it? Some of those things oh. that are said, it's just unnerving. And it's just god you're fucking stupid right and it's and you can't let it go and people are drinking the kool-aid yeah and it's like if if somebody doesn't step in and say something they're going to continue drinking the kool-aid i dude i debate it personally all the time
1: i feel that way but once you step in and engage it almost validates the person who's so stupid
0: Mm
1: -hmm. whereas if you just ignore them it's like somebody if they were shouting on instagram the sky is uh you know, the sky's green. You don't even you don't even engage it because it's like that's such an asinine remark. The sky's clearly blue. I would never even validate that. Yeah. Once you engage, it then goes back and forth and it, it gives it some sort of validity.
4: Well, we never went back and forth because oh, of okay. uh when I say what I say, I have credibility, or I wouldn't be talking yeah. Yeah. i'm not I'm not guessing when I put something on Instagram, I'm not guessing, I'm yeah. talking about something I am very much an expert at.
1: Do you feel like it has benefited your business?
4: No. Instagram hasn't? No, no, no. I weigh everything out. And when I wake up in the morning, anything that comes at me, the first thing I say is, how is this going to hurt me? Or how is it going to help me? Yeah. If it doesn't hurt me, and it helps me a half a percent, I'm fine with that. Yeah. But the few times that I've mentioned that, and I swear to you now I'll never do that again because... You call me on believe, that. I don't believe you. Oh, now that I'm retiring from glass and I'm <laughs> coming at these guys. I'm going to set no. you up. I'm uh, going to start baiting <laughs> you. <laughs> um, when, I, when I hear the thing of, you know, the just inane bullshit that somebody's talking about that has no clear direction in building a surfboard, however, they're selling surf, more surfboards than most people, you kind of look at it just going, Really? Well so, you're not even in this. You you're not even halfway into the pool on this. You're not even knee deep. And you have an opinion? Yeah. No.
1: Um maybe they're selling selling boards to guys who
4: surf one weekend a month. Oh god, you know, no. they're selling boards they're selling more boards in Japan than I'm selling in Japan, and I've been working there for twenty seven freaking years. Yeah. <laughs>
1: but that's what I mean. It's like <laughs> yeah. if they're if they don't actually have the skill set and the talent, then maybe they're selling boards. To guys who are checking Instagram a lot and influenced by that, but not surfing a lot and actually feeling what
4: the shortcomings in the board are, you know? Instagram is definitely the new vehicle uh, that builds a career. Well, that's why
1: I'm curious if it's benefited your career. If, let's say, five years ago you never got on Instagram, do you think your business would be different No,
4: no. My business operates off of Instagram because... Of, um I don't do Facebook but uh, Instagram what I, I show is what I do and I show my day-to-day journey through building a surfboard from start to finish and I think people look at that and have interest in it whether they think that's the way a surfboard should be built or not maybe it is maybe it isn't but it's worked for me for a lifetime um, so yeah Instagram has benefited me because it got my work out for people to see. Yeah. But with that being said, it's benefited a lot lot of people that... um,
0: Are good at Instagram.
4: Are really good at Instagram. Right. And no good at building surfboards. If you
1: ignore all of them, if you just kept your blinders on, though... It's a great way to showcase your product. It is. Can you is. imagine if Instagram was around from the moment you started building boards, you would actually have a visual record of all the boards yeah. you built across. Yeah. That'd be
4: interesting. Yeah. No, it, it, uh, I kept Instagram at bay uh, as far as my own what I do. I don't go on there and wave a flag. I just go on there and post a picture or all shape and because I really want to pass this along. I know I've had a uh, one or two people say, "Why are you showing how to do this?" and I. Well, because I can, and I think it needs to be out there.
1: Not only that, like, go ahead and pick up a planer and try it yourself. You yeah. need to get, like you said, 5,000 boards under your belt before you even really know what you're doing. So you can show people how to do it, but for somebody to actually do all the legwork
2: yeah. is pretty
1: rare. And and if they do, then good for them. Go for
4: it. Yeah, and that's that's what I've tried to, to do lately, especially since I knew the factory was closing for over the last month was that I I invited people down to watch my technique whether they got anything from it or can use it I think I think learning how to build a surfboard the best way would is not a direct contact engagement showing somebody how to use a planer I think if you can let somebody watch you do what you do and then take from that what they think would enhance their their deal. Yeah. Not take all of it. Just take bits and pieces. And that's what I was able to do early on was watch different people. Michelle, Janot, I watched Kent Smith, all these guys shape and I was going. Hmm. 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 Okay. Wow. That's interesting. So I took those things. And, and, and even last year when I was in France, I mean, shit, I've polished 30,000 freaking boards. I finally learned how to polish because Pierre at, at UWL he came from the boat industry, and and he polishes boards that are freakish, man. They look phony. They're like glass. And uh, so he showed me his technique. Yeah, ten years too late, but <laughs> but it's really good. And uh, those are the things I'd like to share with people, so that you know, what? you really not. Maybe I shouldn't say this. I don't know that somebody's going to learn from from uh, watching one person shape I think you would learn better by watching four or five people shape and learn different techniques and yeah. then implement that in your what you want to do yeah it comes natural if it doesn't come natural, you're not gonna be able to shape yeah I don't care what you do you, you can make cabinets you can make cakes you can it, you see it and it comes out your hands that's an artist yeah. And if you can't do that, then you're never gonna be able to shape a glass of board. I don't care if you do it for ten years. Yeah. You have to see it and it comes out your hands. And that's that's just simple.
1: Well, the boardroom show. Excited. You're competing this year. You're a two time winner.
4: Two and seven eights. Two-
1: <laughs> 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 You won for replicating the Ben Ipa sting. And then the following year, I think it was, for the Rusty 84 Aki model short board. Two very different styles of boards. Yeah. This year, we're honoring Mark Andrini. Do you know Mark at all? I do. You do? Yeah.
4: Yeah. What a great guy. And Man, that guy, uh, this is not going to be easy, but I want to back up quick. Oh, okay. So I touched on earlier about how people go in that glass room with their ego yes without any discernible skills
1: we're talking about a glass bowl of a shaping bay not a glassing room but an actual glass shaping bay at the boardroom
4: yeah and it's the kiss of death for me because I wear glasses and the and the lights don't deflect right. so I just see lights everywhere in there and I'm sure a couple of the other guys wear glasses but uh, um, I was in Japan shaping and my wife called me and said you got uh, chosen to shape in the, the IPA to honor Ben IPA and at that time, I had done, oh, man, 25, 26,000 boards. And I actually thought it through. Okay, can I go in there and do this and not look like a fool? I didn't just go, yoo I'm in there, let's right. go. Because how is it going to hurt you or how is it going to help you? If you go in there and you make a donkey of yourself, well, it's going to hurt you. Yeah. So... And Ben uh, always been a big fan of Ben, and uh, so it was a way of honoring him and and so yeah, I went in there and and it worked out. and Rusty, too, Rusty, and I are friends and and again, it was a great honor. Um, to come into this andreini one it it's it's a slippery slope. Mark shapes very unique boards. Jesus, none of this is going to be easy. yeah. Uh, I shape uh, I think at twelve o'clock on Saturday. Against one of my biggest heroes from the '70s, Bill Barnfield, who actually shaped some boards that I used to write at the Pipeline. No way. Early on, and uh, so I'm a big fan of his, and so I shape against him, so that'll be a, a, a good deal. And then, uh, and then the next uh, one is either Matt or Wayno. So right. I mean, this is not going to be a freaking. Walls uh, through the park to get to the top.
1: So, but that's the thing; it's a different format than previous years. Yeah, I don't it's understand the format.
4: It's elimination format. Yeah, I don't understand what the, what well, you, the boards you, are or anything, what we're going to be shaping or how we're going to do it.
1: Yeah, and I don't either. I would uh, spill the beans with you if I knew what you were shaping, but I don't. Um, elimination format, though. So you got to beat Barnesville mm-hmm. to get to Matter Waino, Calvani or wayno They're matched up against each other in round one. Yeah. So whoever wins that, you then shape against it. Yeah.
4: And the funny part is, is Wayno taught Matt how to shape. No way. Brought him his first blank. (laughs) So (laughs) do you even want to win? I mean, there's a part of me that just goes,
1: "Eh, just lose round once. You can enjoy the rest of the weekend. There's a lot of pressure if you win.
4: You know, it's not pressure because I'm going to go in and shape the best board I can. And if I move forward, I'm going to shape the best board I can the next one. It's not really a competition to me. It's more of a, there's a lot of distractions, but I'm going in this thing to shape the best I can and to honor Mark Andrini and to shape with my buddies and Stu and everybody, Travis, all of them. I think it's just gonna be, I think it's a good field. I think it's gonna be great.
1: You and I have had our um, pros and cons about the boardroom show weekend as a whole. It's fun. It's exhausting. It's a lot of things. Um, but I've come to look forward to it. It's like I like hanging out. I like getting super exhausted. I like hanging with everybody. You know, it's fun. In
4: man. the end,
1: it's like I'm worn out and glad I did it.
4: You can have a full lunch when you go there, man. There's a lot to see. A lot of martinis to be consumed. <laughs> <laughs> But this time we don't have a booth, so. So I got the booth,
1: dude. So will you come hang out? Of course I will. Okay. Meet and greet with listeners.
4: Of course. Okay, cool. Of course I'd love to do that. Uh, You're welcome to
1: sell merch. You got shirts and stuff. Bring
4: them by. Yeah. We'll see. I don't think, I don't think Christy, I think Christy just wants to go down and go swim in the pool and. uh, Yeah. Take it easy. Come across and watch its shape and. uh, I'll sell a few teas. I think this, this, this. (laughs) Bring some teas. People want teas, dude. Okay. Yeah, I think and boards. I'm really looking forward to this one because it almost seems like the last one. This is the fifth year in a row that I've been in this. Yeah. The other ones I went to win. Yeah. The other ones I was focused. I went yeah. to do that. This one, maybe because the glass shop closed, or maybe it's just a couple years older. Uh, this one, I'm going to enjoy it. I just want to uh, be around a group of shapers that I really admire. Well, bring your
1: A-game, dude. I don't want you softening up right now three weeks in advance.
4: Bro, I ain't going there to lose. Okay.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Like Mick Fanning showing
4: up at Bell's. No.
1: We're back with Spy and Alex Gray. Remember I told you Alex would spill the secret on how to find perfect uncrowded waves? Well, hint, it's related to that cold water therapy bit at the beginning of the show.
2: That's every surfer's dream is to just be in board shorts scoring perfect surf. You realize it's not every surfer's dream to, you know, have snow coming down while you're putting your wetsuit on that you feel like Gumby and can barely move. And when you jump in the water, it, it takes your breath away. You realize it's, it's the faint hearted. It's people who have that little bit of psycho in them that can go out. And thanks to, you know, Google earth and technology these days find nooks and crannies in countries that no one was ever looking before to go surfing. And really it's because of the element. You know, right. that element of cold, I think, will decide between a crowded light up and a place that no one's ever going to go.
1: Go to spyoptic.com, grab a pair of shades or snow goggles, and then use our promo code PODCAST to support this show. And for the month of April, in honor of Earth Day, we will be gifting you a one-year membership to the Surfrider Foundation when you use that promo code. Our hope is that through the next year of correspondence with Surfrider, you will see the good work that they are doing, and then you'll renew that membership at the end of the year. So spyoptic.com, promo code podcast. Check out all their gear. I wear the hate Two frame. With Happy Lenses, Alex wears the cliffside frame with Happy Lenses, spyoptic.com. See Happy. Are you inspired by surfing still?
4: I am. I am. What aspect I, I of really, it? really, really, I am just totally blown away with Steffi Gilmore. Really? That's I, your- she surfs so good. Her turns, the way she comes around a corner... And her style—it's just like the '70s. Now, here's here's what I really enjoy enjoyed about surfing early on was that it was really easy on the eyes. It was really easy to watch Jerry and Army and those guys surf, and it was it was really pleasing. And, and Steffi Gilmore has that same thing. It's just amazing. Um, I'm not the real big jumping through the air. I, I don't particularly care myself about the the contest because it it's hard to watch i think that they're great athletes and they're great surfers and i mean yeah they're 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 fantastic but i would rather watch somebody there's this guy who surfs for with rob colby um with Tor- need essentials Torin martin yeah so good. are you kidding me i know that is so easy on the eyes and where did he come from don't know rob, I, was, I was with rob one day and he goes look at a video of this this and i go wow how how unreal is that
1: i like i would say one year ago it hasn't been much more than a year he showed up on instagram and i think it was even before need started like flowing in gear yeah i just saw him on instagram and i was like who's this guy ripping like effortless writing really interesting boards." riding fish in, like, really powerful surf, riding mid-lengths
4: at Jay Bay and just freaking, like, yeah. the most beautiful lines. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what I'm interested in, is watching that type of surfing because you're not pushing the board. A
2: yeah, boor- exactly.
4: A, a board should be able to run on its own. You exactly. should be able to jump to your feet. and it, You shouldn't have to push the board to get it to go. And that's what that's what they're doing is... Is if you watch Steffi surf she gets to her feet she's freaking gone and she's not pushing she's just flowing and I agree um I couldn't agree with you that's what I like yeah um, and that inspires me because that's what I make as boards for that surfer that's what that's what I do
1: it brings it full circle to the earlier earlier conversation about having a board designed specifically for you with that kind of refinement which is allowing the board there's like a fine balance between developing a skill set as an athlete, as a surfer and then allowing, not imposing that skill set on the board right? So letting the board find its flow and find its trim and not trying to impose everything that you've learned from every other board you've ever ridden onto that board. And I find myself always struggling with that. When I get on a brand new board, I'll generally let the board lead the way for the first couple of sessions. And then I'll get to three sessions in where I'm trying to rip it. You know, I'm trying to surf the board and that's when I do my worst surfing. And then I get out of the water frustrated and I'm like, what went wrong? And it's no, no, no feather the brake, like get let go and let muscle memory but also just let the board kind of find its flow but you have to have a good board that can do that you know you can't go to a giant retailer and buy a board off a rack that does that right. you, you'll find a board that paddles well and like allows you to surf it but you don't find the board that kind of speaks to you i guess sure. is what it
4: is yeah you know you and i have surfed together uh, quite often and and you have that style to where you let the board run, and then uh, uh, on my best days, dude. yeah. Th- there's a, a few people that that have that style, real 70s, heavy on their front foot, that let your board run, and and everything comes together real quick. And then maybe people get confused that they want to surf like somebody else and try to push it, and that's when that design of a board is not. That's that's why the the single fin. A single fan forces you to have a smooth style. It really does. You know, I don't know if you saw an Instagram of Army and Hawaii 50. No. It was in 1974. I, I was sitting there one night and it came on and it was a board that I knew really well. It was a board that Wayne Santos shaped. And and I was sitting there one night and Hawaii 50 came on and there's Army surfing the pipeline, so I film it. I put it on Instagram and and that board um was quite the uh, the anomaly for the for the pipeline because everybody was riding flat bottom boards, just full pintails to where you could ride real high on the face of the wave. But this board had a belly in the in the nose, much like the late '69 '70s board had a kind of a hole. And Army could get so high on the damn face of the wave at the pipeline with that thing to where he was up over the foam ball, and he could come out of that thing from way back. Hmm. And uh, and he was one of the stunt guys in Hawaii Five O. No, they just took pictures. They filmed him surfing the pipeline one day. Oh, really? Yeah, and you used do, it in you, the you show? You could do that back then. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and you saw it on TV recently? I saw it on my
4: phone. Yeah, it's on That's my Instagram. amazing.
1: Amazing. Yeah. I missed that one.
4: And it was great because him and I talk about that board all the time. And he goes, yeah, you know, out of all the boards I had for the pipeline, that damn thing worked the best. It was a 7 4 it was funny because him and Kent went into a lightning bolt one day to drop off boards, and this thing was in the used rack. No way. And he, he just grabbed it. He said it didn't work well at sunset, but it, it he could get like a fly on the freaking wall at the pipeline, mm. and, and it would work, yeah.
1: Speaking of the used rack, I have to tell the story. Um, I feel like I've told it somewhere recently, but it's my favorite story, so I have to retell it. The first time you and I met, which we've been hanging out a bit for the last four or five years. Yeah. But I told you when we first started hanging out four or five years ago, we we're at dinner at the boardroom show on a Saturday night. Yeah. And I was like, hey, Roger, you know when you and I first met? And you're like, uh, no, I don't. I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm like, dude, it's this giant swell and, and like Huntington was too walled and too much swell. And so I was surfing Bolsa Chica like. I forget actually what spot it was. It might've been main tower. And I was like, I was surfing with my buddy Grant and I caught a wave. I was riding this 84 Stewart that I got at a uh, garage sale. I think I paid 40 bucks for it. It was a beater, but it was um, yellowed. It was too small for what I would normally ride, but it had a lot of volume in it because it was from the 80s. And I got a set wave and it was like this long runner and I was in position, got a set wave. It was a right and I surfed it all the way to the beach. And you were paddling out after I kicked out of the wave, and you were like, Hey, dude, that turn was rad. And I was like, Oh, thanks. And I didn't know who you were. And I paddled out, and my buddy Grant was like, Hey, do you know who that was that just said, What's up to you? And I'm like, No. He goes, That's Roger Hines. And I was like, Oh, I've no, heard. That? <laughs> no, <laughs> but I knew your name, you know, because like I grew up around surfing, so I knew your name as like a shaper. I knew that you were a surfboard shaper. And I was like, oh, no way. And I remember specifically you saying that turn was rad because the board was from the 80s and that would have been the appropriate term to use in the 80s. Like, but um, I, I mentioned this story to you at the table at the board on a Saturday night at dinner at the boardroom show. And as I was explaining this story to you, you started smiling and you were like, you remembered. You were like, dude, I totally remember that wave. I remember you. I didn't know it was you, but I remember that wave. And I was like, that was me. That was my favorite story. What do I miss the most? Your memory. <laughs> <See>? <laughs> so you remember the wave from 20 years ago? You don't remember the story from four years ago? I don't. <laughs> I swear to you, that happened. Oh,
4: good Lord.
1: Yeah. Um, oh. So, but what you were talking about with the single fin, that board wasn't a single fin but more recently i got that ninja from you it's yeah. like a 510 ninja yeah. short board wide bit of volume wide tail um and it has like a f- you put five fin boxes in it mm-hmm. center fin box being like for a single fin yeah totally smoothed out my style kind of reset my style for short boards and what i like about that board and i think you should actually discuss that board design on air cuz people would be interested in it. Um it allows me to surf more nimble like a shortboard but all the paddle kind of benefit of a fish but then the single fin resets my style. You know like I try I'll get up and end up kind of bottom turning and want to check off the bottom to like get up to the lip and it doesn't allow me to. It just like just goes, no, 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 take your time. Yeah. Ooh, like long, drawn out bottom turn. And then can't quite crack the lip where I wanted to, but end up like doing a bigger, kind of longer arc. Sure. And then I'll shift off that board onto a high performance short board and be able to kind of maintain the benefit that I gained, that resetting of style.
4: A single fin, much like a twin fin, is you're turning off the rail of the board and not your fins. Now, again, this is just only my opinion. Um, so a thruster or a four-fin, more of a high-performance board, you're going to be able to turn and pinpoint a spot on the lip that you can put that board. On a single-fin, it forces you to just draw and let the wave run. Let, let the wave direct you where you need to go next. Right. As opposed to you going against the grain and... Right. Try and, and basically that's what you're doing is you're going against the grain. Um, again, uh, I watched uh, Steffi Gilmore surf her final heat. Uh, I did watch that contest at Bells because I really like watching people surf Bells because Michael Peterson, I really liked the way he surfed it in the 70s. Really, uh, that same type of style that Steffi's doing. And, and uh, it was just... She was doing those turns, and yeah, and she was doing it on a thruster. So, but but I understand she's been riding single fins and twins and everything. So she's adapted her style to fit the the pro tour. Did you
1: see Andrew Kidman's film a couple of years ago? I think it was called Spirit of Akasha. No, I did not. He took footage of Michael Peterson riding a single fin, yeah, and Steph Gilmore riding a single fin and, like, transposed it over one another. Mm -hmm. So it it actually started out with just MP, like, going down the line, and then it faded, like, a slow dissolve into Steph Mm -hmm. going down the line. Mm -hmm. And they were, like, on the same exact, not only line but same style, yeah. same flow and then they go into a cutback and then he leaves them kind of transposed over each other doing
4: a full cutback on a single fin. Yeah. It's radical. Oh, I'd love to make her a board. There's there's a couple people that I would love to make a board for because I've made them during that era that they're trying to revisit. Um Jill Tudor, I would love to make him a pipe Oh, really? I know I know my way around a pipe And uh and I'd like to make Steffi aboard because they're real easy on the eyes to watch surf yeah uh, and there's probably a couple other people and but um
1: so the original question was what are you most interested in in surfing and Stephanie Gilmore was your answer do you read any magazines are you watching any are you checking <clears throat> any websites on the daily
4: no no I just kind of go to the beach and and see what's going on down there and just surf and i i talked to a few other people and just kind of i don't know that i'm disconnected or i'm connected i just kind of do what comes at me you know you listening to any excellent surf podcasts out there or anything well there's this one (laughs) called surf blunder (laughs) (laughs) is that the one scott bass does that's the one the bass does (laughs) (laughs) Um, sorry bassy come on buddy whose board building do you admire I'm probably biased with uh, Wayneo and Matt Calvani. I just love those guys. I think they're just at the top of the heap. Both of those guys have pushed their planers around tens of thousands of boards. Wayne Rich yeah. and Matt Calvani? Yeah. Do you and have boards from either of them? Matt shaped me one one time. I, I, well, through my career, I've always had people shape me boards who I really respected. I have a BK out, out in the rafters in the garage. I always had people shape me boards... I would give them. Okay, this is what I do. Make me one, and and I'd like to see what it goes like. I've never had Wayne make me one, only because of probably he's up there and I'm here. But um, well, Greg Knoll told me this one time I was with Rarick, and he goes, you know, I I respect anybody that stands ass deep in foam, you know, and that was Greg Knoll. Yeah, and, and I feel the same way. Anybody who who builds a board and 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 does it different than everybody else and tries to keep that bar up there yeah you know keep keep the bar way high and and um
1: if you could order any board from anybody on the planet what would you order and from whom
4: well it's about a month too late but i would love to have had george Downey make me a board i was out to dinner in hawaii with randy and ricardo pomar when we got word that george had passed and paul strau had uh, told me through the years that the boards that George shaped for him had five different configurations to the bottom because he believed in a flat planing area and then a curved turning area and I've, I'd never got a chance to see one but I would have really loved to have George uh, build a board for me.
1: It's a good call. Uh, does Paul still have those boards?
4: No, he wrote it in the 65 World Contest in Peru he was in two events he was in the big wave i event i think he took third in the big wave and he won the small wave event but uh i tried to replicate that board uh, with paul um paul said i got pretty close and it was a lot of effort but anybody that thinks like that okay. i would love to talk to him and find out it's funny because my wife and i were at the uh, Opening ceremonies one year for the for the Eddie and uh, and we got a chance to meet George and and I didn't take advantage of it and nor probably could I because he was surrounded with so many people. Yeah, but that that's probably that's probably it. That's a good call. Yeah. Um, when was the last time you went to the dermatologist? <laughs> oh, Jesus. December. I spent three months with surgery for skin cancer. God, what a shit show. I'm doing a PSA on the podcast. I'm doing an
1: ongoing PSA. Yeah. So I want you to tell your story. Um, I talked to Josh Martin about it too. Here's the deal. The sun is a carcinogen, period. It will give you cancer. It is completely preventable. Sunblock will certainly mitigate the chances of you getting skin cancer. And certain types of skin cancers are deadly. So you can completely prevent your death by wearing sunblock and staying out of the sun. There's hereditary uh, influences, of course, and certain people are more susceptible than others. But the reason why we're doing the PSA is, ongoing PSA, is that you don't need to die from the thing. No, you really don't. You don't. It's Not only is it preventable, but it's detectable. Mm-hmm. You just need to get scanned or screened. Yeah. So a lot of uh, mostly males, I would argue, don't want to go to the doctor. They don't want to get screened. Well, you could have something that will kill you, and you're simply too stubborn to actually get screened and get it checked out. So this this PSA is... Just a reminder, go to the dermatologist, get screened, wear sunblock in the interim, but definitely get screened at least once a year, depending on your uh, you know,
4: makeup and heredity. But what's your story? Well There was no real sunscreen in the in the sixties and seventies, especially when I was in Hawaii. I mean, you were just cooking yourself every day. And there was you know, I'm German, I got red hair when I was younger and you just get cooked, and you go, oh, well, that's just what it is. And, and, you know, it comes at you later on in life. It very rarely happens, I think, early right out of the gate. But um, I had three places on my face, on the same side of my face, one on my nose, one above the bridge of my nose, and one under my eye. And it was just the craziest thing. There was just a little pinhead of blood on my nose that would show up and then just go away. And then a pinhead of blood that would show up on my forehead and just show up and go away. And then there was actually when I was in France shaping, um, shout out to UWL. (laughs) Um, Are you going back this year? uh, September. I'm scheduled to be there. Okay,
0: cool.
4: I actually had something that kind of looked like a small zit under my eye. And that one troubled me. Uh, The other ones I thought were just nothing but... The one under my eye, I thought, yeah. And I was in France, and it, it'd come and go away. And then when I got back, my wife dragged me down to the dermatologist, and, and off I went. And, boy, it was just, they cut into you until it's gone, and then they stitch you up, and then they cut into you until it's gone, and then they stitch you up. But with all that being said, you really have to monitor it. Because yeah. there's been a couple of deaths uh, from skin cancers or some sort of that 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 was very preventable. So none of those were melanoma on your face. No, no. the The thing was was when it, it gets to that stage on your face, they uh, the doctor told me that it turns really quick. Yeah, it turns really quick. So no, I I got away with it. Yeah. So, but I won't let it. Let's put it this way: if I have to go to France and there's something on my face, I'm not going to France. Yeah, I'm definitely going to the doctor this time.
1: So yours was um, resolved by simply cutting it out and stitching you up, and then you just heal with a scar.
4: Yeah, actually, the one on my my nose, it was just a big hole, and then the my head they stitched me up, and then my under my eye they actually had to build a flap. Oh, really? Yeah.
1: Okay. But. You know, it's just, they do it at the dermatologist, or do you got to yeah. go to a plastic surgeon? No,
4: actually, the dermatologist I went to, they did it all in-house. And okay. and that's pretty convenient, because when you have something that um, can turn on you pretty quick and yeah. get get rid of you, you you feel better if, if okay, they're going to cut it and biopsy it right there. Right. And then they're going to come back. And I sat in the chair for this one, uh, where they built the flap. I think I was in the chair for like four and a half hours. Right. And, um, but when i was done it was all gone right
1: so what i've learned i actually interviewed a dermatologist at scripps Mm -hmm. for the show um you want to get multiple like you being concerned is the most important thing you and your loved ones are the best people on the front line to like do the screenings because even if you go to a dermatologist some dermatologists say oh that's not a problem yeah and you need to kind of make sure that if you're feeling uncomfortable with it to really make sure you get multiple opinions. But melanoma is generally related to mole, moles, but people think moles are all that matter. That's not true. Anything dryness, patchiness, pimples, what the dermatologist that I interviewed told me was changing is the most important thing. Anything on your body that changes. So, if there is like you said, those pinheads of blood that come and go. I had never heard about the pinhead of blood until you just said it, but the coming and going is suspect. Yeah. The pimple related something that's coming and going, suspect. Dryness that comes and goes, suspect. Patchiness, whatever it is. Anything that's abnormal for your normal skin, for the that you've known it for your entire life, is what you want to go get checked out.
4: Yeah. So yeah. And, and, and you really do. You want to make time. You don't want to just say, well, I'm not able to make that appointment because you'll die. Yeah. You really need to make that appointment.
1: Well, the reality is like there's a lot of types of cancer that are um, you don't detect until later in yeah. life and you don't know that they're coming. Yeah, And so that's a shame and it's terrible that people die of that. This is one that we know. Yeah. That we can see, that we can predict, that we can screen. So let's not die from that. Exactly. Um, final question. On that note. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Final question for Good every... reminder, though, I have to
4: go back to the dermatologist.
1: <laughs> do you? Are yeah. you? Now you have to go every six months or something? Every three months. Wow. Yeah. And I assume you're wearing sunblock all day, every day?
4: I do. Yeah. It, uh, but from what I was told, especially from the surgeon, he just goes, look, you're almost 63 years old. This, this shit happened... Forty years ago. Yeah, true. You know. But still. But yeah, I, I definitely still do good. wear a hat. Good. I look like an old man with the hat on, though. I'm I look gonna like make one, fun of you. I'm gonna look like I look like I'm working on my tomato plants.
1: Hey, <laughs> let's just keep it straight. Doesn't matter if you have cancer or not. I'm still making fun of you for wearing a hat. God, You're, are you wearing it Thank in you. the lineup? Never. Okay, good. Are you kidding me? Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, cancer's a high and price I won't to wear pay. Gloves but... either. <laughs> Uh, I have a final question for you, but was there anything else that we didn't discuss? That we Well, were... the
4: space-time continuum, we get, that one got past us.
1: Yes, yes, yes. Should we save that for the next podcast? We have something to talk about. Let's do that.
4: Okay, cool. There was some other quantum
1: physics-related string theory that I wanted to cover with you, but okay. um, we'll save it. Final question is, what was the last board that you rode?
4: An 11-foot Roger Hines Ultra Glide. Ultra Glide? I'm unfamiliar with it. I just started making them when I got back from France. I noticed that there was a a lot of people riding that size of board, and not a lot of people wanted to make them, or maybe not a lot of people wanted to glass them. So a few people reached out to me, and would you have interest in making them? I go, well, back in the 90s, I used to make a lot of 12-footers for Makaha, for the Russ K guys. We built a lot of 12-footers um so you know it wasn't a reach I knew how to build them yeah and um yeah so I made myself one and because um, I was out of the water for so long with that skin thing that I didn't get weak and I didn't get fat I just lost my core strength to where I could no longer ride the board I rode. I couldn't I didn't have the core strength to really push up and so I made myself a bigger board and that kind of got me back in a good direction is it polyurethane or EPS? Polyurethane. Uh-huh. Okay. I like the momentum. I like the. Norm, my my daily board when I when I'm able to surf, I ride a EPS board. That's okay. all I ride. Even if I'm in Hawaii, uh, I was just in Hawaii last month, surfing smaller sunset on a nine o, uh, longboard gun EPS poly- parabolic stringer.
1: Tell me about the eleven footer though. Um, Single fin. What are some of the design characteristics in
4: it? Is it a single fin? No, this one's a two plus one. Okay. Because I ride a smaller center fin than most people. Um, I think it's about twenty-three and a half wide, maybe a fourteen-inch tail, and I think a sixteen and a half nose. But it's quite thick. It's probably <coughs> at least four and a half inches thick, four and three eighths. But I pull the rails way down, so that The rails feel like a regular shorter board. Because that's where the problem lies is when you make a thick board and you leave the rails thick, well when you try to knife it into the face of the wave, it'll push back on you. You'll actually feel the board push back on you. So I just make the, the rail the same thickness of the board I would make for you. Okay. But in under my belly that board is four and a half inches thick. Wow. Okay. And I can just one paddle into those damn things and I'm gone. Yeah. Um so it's enabled me to surf waves that like today, I wouldn't have surfed. Right. And so I really wanted to get out, go out today and it was like one foot. And so I got a few waves. It's fun. Good. Yeah. It opens up a lot of options. Yeah. I use a flat bottom, but then I run V on that big of a board. It's 11 foot. I probably run V at least four feet up from the tail. Because I don't want to have to turn from the tail of the board. I want to be able okay. to turn. What that does is it opens up the sweet spot. Right. You'll be able to get to your feet and turn the board from the middle of the board. Um, there's nothing worse than having to walk back to the tail right. to turn the board. Right. Um, so on my, And that just goes back to big wave guns. I mean, on my big wave guns, I run V halfway up the board. Because if you're falling out of the sky... Of a seven-story building and you land on your board you want to be able to turn that thing from anywhere yeah you don't want to have to adjust so I, I use that on any board that size I want to be able to just jump to my feet and be able to turn um you have retired multiple times in your career what makes this time different Roger well the other times I was sick A couple times I was sick um like the Kelly Slater of surfboard builders I think this time is different because I don't want to own a factory
2: yeah
4: Maurice made it very comfortable for me he he was it's such a great friend he made it comfortable for me to where I could land down there and go in and glass my boards help him out and pay for my materials and and the overhead uh, per board and and scram
1: yeah
4: I don't want a factory around my neck at this age so, as far as retiring, no. I'm going to shape some boards. Good. Uh, but I'm not... I'm, I really... At, I don't think I'm going to glass anymore because there's no place to. Yeah. And and to tell you the truth, I, I'm kind of tired of standing on my feet. Well, I was under the
1: impression coming into this that you were fully... That you weren't even going to be shaping anymore. No. So, I'm glad to hear that you're still taking Yeah, no,
4: this. I still have orders. Good. I still have orders. I'm going to shape them. But the, I think that the thing that might happen is a lot of my clientele wanted it built by one pair of hands right that was my shtick yeah and and people loved that they loved the interaction of coming to me and, and getting a board made for them and then me glassing it and and I don't know that going forward that that's still going to be the same but if it is it is and if it ain't it ain't Shaped by one pair of hands. Yeah, you know what, i I, um, I still enjoy the craft. I still enjoy going out there shaping barefoot and listening to music at 11 or motivational tapes, whatever. Podcasts. Podcasts. <laughs> and, uh, and it's, it's very enjoyable. I, I, yeah, I have a shape room in the backyard and. And so it's kind of nice to be it's kind of where I started is where I ended up
1: there you go yeah it simplifies your life being able to work in your backyard you not have to drive
4: 30 miles to do the glassing and all that sort of stuff simplifies everything and people like it because when I shape their board I say you can come over and watch me shape it and and it's at the house and it's in the backyard and it's kind of where where I started was I ended up where I started love it it it's
1: poetic and a good note to go out on. All right,
4: buddy. Um, how do people get a, hold, get a hold of you? How do they argue with you on Instagram? Where do they tag you? <sighs> My arguing on Instagram is over. I apologize if I offended anybody. <laughs> don't apologize. <laughs> that makes it worse. I don't Just mean own that. It. I, don't, I don't apologize to anybody. Um, the website, or call me. My phone number's on the website. What's the website? I am the easiest accessible shaper on the planet. You can call me and I'll answer the phone. What's the website? RogerHindsSurfboards.com.
1: And my phone number is there. And for fighting on Instagram, at RogerHindsSurfboards.
4: No, I'm canceling. Babe, cancel the Instagram. <laughs> We're done. <laughs> All right, man. Thanks for the one. Hey, thank you, buddy. We need to be I want to
2: crew with you. We need the man,
1: I've said it all throughout the course of this show, the last two hours. But Roger Hines Surfboards com, and then of course at Roger Hines Surfboards, you can find it all on surfsplendorpodcast.com and of course I've got a link to the Maui Leaflight Project that Jeff Timponi is doing. Great work over there on Maui. Come meet him and meet Roger at the Boardroom Show next month may 5th and 6th in Del Mar, california i know people are flying in for the event and uh so if you live locally and you're not coming to it you're blowing it people are flying in for this thing it's really rad so many of the great shapers in the world and surfers uh pro surfers show up for it all under one roof it's a great great event so come hang all weekend long and then of course support this show on spyoptic.com use our promo code podcast and then of course you'll be psyched their shades are killer and then of course you'll get that one year free membership to the surf rider foundation they'll throw you a t-shirt stickers all that jazz it's a win-win you win spy wins i win the environment wins and that'll keep me in the game pumping out content for the foreseeable future all right i hope you're enjoying the margaret river event last night was crazy at north Point. And so I'm going to enjoy that through the weekend, and I hope you do too. All right, share the show with friends and follow along on social media at Surf Splendor. Oh, and rate and review the show in whatever podcast app you listen in iTunes, Apple, that's the main one. And uh, help other people find the show by doing that. All right, get a Roger Hines surfboard, get back into the ocean, share a couple of waves, and then shred harder than you've ever shredded before. See you next week you